Welcome back to the White Coat Club. My name is Lindsay and I'm a counselor at Moon Prep. And today I have two of my fellow counselors here with me, Alex and Nicole. And we're gonna be talking about some of the common college myths and debunking them. So our first one that we're gonna cover is colleges only want students with straight A's. Nicole, do you wanna take this debunk? Yeah, definitely not true. Getting good grades is important, but it's not the end of the world. You know, if you have a B or some other courses maybe weren't your strongest, especially if you're looking at those earlier years, it's not going to, you know, really move the needle too much. Admissions officers are really looking at the bigger picture and your transcript definitely tells that story. So all A's, not always necessary. Yeah, I have, I was just talking to like a, one of my new students and they got like one B their freshman year, which was like their COVID year. And just like absolutely devastated because they're like, well, I'm never going to qualify for like the top programs. Like everyone's going to compare me to the 4.0 students. And, you know, I had a lot of reassure, had to reassure them a lot that one B is definitely not a sign of weakness or like a sign that your application is, is like worthless, which is what they were definitely thinking. And I think that's a great point, Lindsay, is if a student has a B in ninth grade, colleges really look towards that progression. So Mm -hmm. in 10th grade, if they have all A's or in 11th grade, there's an A minus and in 12th grade, there's, you know, a little um, mix of A's and A minuses too. They appreciate that positive progression much more than a student having all A's in ninth grade. And then as we move through high school, we getting, you know, having B's and C's on their transcripts. So they do appreciate the progression of growth. Yeah. And they definitely do look at that too. And I guess in the same vein, another myth that we often see um, is a C and an AP is better than a B in an honors class or taking like regular classes for an easy A is better. Yeah, so I always get that question. And I think the big picture is colleges want students to excel in college level classes. They want to see that students are challenging themselves. So certainly I always feel a B or a B plus in uh, an AP level class, of course, looks better than an A in a creative writing regular class. So students should challenge themselves and really be exploring their passions. It doesn't mean they have to take every AP course offered at their school. They can be following if there are some students, the STEM APs and whatnot. But um, definitely colleges want to see that students are trying new things, but also challenging themselves in areas that they are passionate about. And something you said just there too, about like, you know, you don't take every AP, but like challenge yourself to that. And too, like I had a new client call last night and they were really stressed because they're like, when they first started at the school, there was a lot of AP classes available, but then a lot of teachers like left. And so there wasn't as many AP classes available by like, you know, the time he was like actually eligible to take the AP like classes. And so he, as like a rising senior really only had a, like maybe a handful, um, And so they were really stressed out about that too, but colleges are going to see kind of the opportunities that you had and just making sure that you are taking advantage of what you have in front of you. They're not going to say like, oh, this kid only took six APs, but maybe there was only eight available in a school versus a kid maybe who's got like 25 options. And so of course they can maybe take some more. Exactly. Every school has different policies. Some high schools say a freshman can only take one AP. Others say freshmen can take two or three. So Every school is a different policy, but that school profile that is sent with every transcript will explain their policy and all their offerings. So you're 100% right. If you have a student coming from New York that has 15 APs, they can't be, you know, it can't be held against a student coming from Texas that only has five because of the school policy. So that's 100% true. Yeah. 
Nicole, let's let you debunk this next one. Um, a high SAT or ACT guarantees that I'll be accepted into my dream school. Yeah, definitely not. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, we've, I've worked with a lot of students that have, you know, 35, 36 on the ACT, you know, high 1500s. Um, and they definitely had some denials over the last few years and it's definitely not a guarantee. I like to use, you know, the analogy of a pizza pie. It's just one piece that you're bringing to the table. You're presenting yourself as a whole. Um, they're not just going to see a score and think that this is going to be a perfect candidate. Um, so no, not always. I guess, I guess it does kind of help because it's like, once again, like a strong piece of the puzzle, but if you don't have any extracurriculars or if your GPA is a little weaker, um, it's, it's not going to be enough, unfortunately. Yeah. I think also too, a lot of times I'll talk to my students about this is, you know, what is that showing them? It's showing them that you're good at test taking, but what else do you have on your profile? If there, again, if there's other pieces are missing, you're really just showcasing to the school that you are a good test taker. Um, and maybe not some of those other pieces that are key as far as what the extracurriculars bring into that profile as well. Mm -hmm. So the person with the perfect score, but has lacking lack of leadership and other real world experiences is not going to be really the best fit for their school versus the person that maybe their score is a touch lower, but they do have all of those other pieces of the puzzle. With a lot of schools going like test optional too, that piece is kind of in some places a little bit less because they could be test optional. They could be test blind. So it doesn't even matter if you do have that 35, 36. And so that's like something, something to think about. It's like, if your SAT score is a little bit lower, you could go test optional if you really do have all the other pieces of the pie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of students want to spend, you know, 10th grade, they want to just get their tests out of the way or just start to focus on that test because that's all, you know, they, they think that they need to do is just perfect scores in my acceptances. But, you know, really think about how much time you're spending on that when you're coming down to, are we going to take it again? Or is my time best used elsewhere? It's a conversation we're having a lot right now, I think, with all, a lot of our students, especially like our seniors who should be focusing on other things like maybe essays or, you know, just college list research and things along those lines. All right. How about myth number four? Uh, my personal statement does not need to be creative. How about so that would, one out? I would love to answer that question. So the personal statement is that 650 word college essay um, that students will submit through the Common App or Coalition um, mm -hmm. or other applications as, as far as um, a main essay component. Um, and I think the college essay is an extremely important part of that holistic pizza pie. So colleges will see the entire student's application, of course, but that college essay is where you really get to shine. You really get to have a voice for the application. You get to speak to the admissions counselors about who you are, something that you're passionate about, something that you've persevered or experienced. Um, so I really do think the college essay is a, a strong piece for students to really take advantage of that opportunity to highlight something about their lives that the application, that admissions counselors might not be able to see anywhere in their application. Yeah. And to be themselves. I think that that's the most important thing. Um, I was just reading a lot of essays yesterday and the, I felt like the student while, she, like, while a good writer was like kind of overusing maybe like adjectives to try and like maybe sound smarter or, you know, making like sh sentences that, you know, once again, kind of were had complex structure, but 
weren't necessarily like flowing all that well, but I think that the whole like angle that she was going for was to try and sound smarter. Not that she isn't a very smart student, but just to like try and sound smarter and to like make a really good first impression. And I almost felt like it was hurting her a little bit just because at the end of the day, we didn't really get to see that personality. I think creativity was definitely um, lost a little bit, just trying to sound as smart as possible. And I think that's like pretty obvious too. Like, I think it used to happen, you know, years ago where a student would just right click and do like thesaurus for every single yeah. word. <laughs> and I always, I always think of that friends episode where Joey was trying to be really smart and in, yeah. in, uh, Chandler and Monica's adoption letter. And he, you know, used it thesaurus for every single word. And then even ended it like love from a baby kangaroo because he right clicked Joey as <laughs> So I think it's always just that perfect example where you really want to be real. Um, you want to, it, you want it to be your own words and you don't have to sound smarter than you really are. It really should be true and from the heart. Yeah. That's a great example. I forgot about that. <laughs> Sometimes it does pop into my head when I'm reading a student's essay and I'm like, they definitely did a Joey Triviani on this one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have, I've definitely had students like that before. All right. Myth number five. Um, if something is optional, like an essay, an interview, um, a video, it is okay to ignore. So I always say with this one, optional is never optional, but sometimes it can be optional. So if, so it's a hard rule to follow, but if a college says, Hey, this is an optional supplement and we want to know more about an extracurricular activity. I always say, why not use every single box available to you mm -hmm. to share more about your life and your experiences. Um, I've spoken with many admissions counselors about the COVID question. Um, so we know that sometimes there is still a COVID question. Obviously the pandemic um, is only a few years ago, but still going on and students have been impacted. So if the question on an application says, um, has the COVID-19 pandemic had an influence on you and you Really, you went virtual like everybody else and you quarantined like everybody else, but then, you know, life was pretty normal for you, then that's a question you don't have to answer. If you don't have um, a situation where you were greatly impacted by a death or unemployment or changing schools because of one of those scenarios, then they do say the question like that. Um, is actually optional. But I always say, if there's a box for you to fill out about more about your life, it is only an opportunity to share more and an opportunity for the colleges to learn more about you. I also think too, if it says optional and you don't do it, what are you showing those colleges that you're kind of taking the easy route? So that's that's my uh, opinion on that one. Yeah, especially like the optional. I can't remember what school it is, but I know one school is like an optional, like why us kind of essay. Absolutely got to do that if if they're giving you the opportunity to tell them why you want to go to that school, you should be, you should be taking it. I know a lot of schools too, like just specifically for undergrad are giving you the option to do an interview, um, like just before you even submit your application. I know some are even open this summer and I usually say go for that too, you know, prep for it, do your homework and anything that you have the opportunity to showcase to them. It's just more that you're presenting about yourself. One thing to say to do a little bit of research too, if you can, on like how the schools want you to use the space, if you have any doubts, like I know the UC applications got like an additional information section, um, you know, that says kind of similar to the common app. Like if there's anything else that you feel like you need to share, like share it here. Um, and I had one girl who like wrote like, you know, a full-blown essay, like an additional essay. 
for that one. Um, but if you go on like their website and like I've attended some of like the webinars too from like the UC schools, and that's like the one thing that they say explicitly like not to do, like not to treat this as an additional essay, um, just to like share, you know, another activity about another essay about an activity or something like that. It should be more show to showcase like maybe like a, a hardship if it kind of related to like the COVID pandemic or um, if you did have like a dip in grades to like a death in the family or and you wanted to explain that or something along those lines, that's really what they want it to be used for. So just be careful about like not trying to cram more into your application um, because ultimately they're not going to going to appreciate it. Yeah. And I think you're hundred percent right. A lot of colleges on their admissions page of like what's required in their um, application. It'll say those bullet points. It'll yeah. say, this is actually optional. Please include only life events in here. So, so the admissions page is there as a resource. So definitely once you have your college list solidified, just go through the requirements for each school and make sure you understand um, all of those requirements necessary. Mm-hmm. Myth number six, um, I can never have too many things on my resume. Like this is a really common one. Yeah, I think this is kind of like a loaded one too. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I would think you definitely can have too many things. I know we were having a conversation about a student probably a month or so ago that had like a four page resume and it just kept going on and on. I frequently have students who are talking about all the things that they did in middle school and they have this very long list and it's just, it's too much. Um, so I think that yes, in short, yeah, you, you can kind of have too many things. I think it's really important. I think they give you 10 for a reason. They want you to focus on again, which 10 are you presenting that's going to show and highlight the best qualities about you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times kids want to do like their most competitive things or the things that are going to look the most impressive, but other things too, like if you have a hobby that you're really passionate about, but you haven't won, you know, awards or, you know, even if you're not on like a varsity level, but you just like to do something, I think it's still really good to put on there. Um, if it's something that you have a passion for. And I feel, um, we kind of chatted about this a little bit on a, on a previous question, but, you know, seniors might say, oh, like I want to do a bunch of things this summer or in the fall to add to my application. So colleges know if a student just added like four activities to their resume during the fall of senior year, they're probably just trying to beef up their resume. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I also think it's really important to you want to follow your passion. So you want to explore new things. Um, but if it was something you didn't like, like let's say you tried out for track in ninth grade and you hated it. Um, but after that, you found out that you really love swimming um, and you did swimming 10, 11, 12. So track might not make it to the resume or on the common app in one of those 10 boxes, um, but it really did lead you to one of your other passions where you found swimming. So I think it's okay for students to explore colleges. I always get that question of like, is it okay if I first did art things and now I'm moving towards STEM. Yeah, colleges, no, you're 14 to 18 years old. This is the time for you to really explore and learn new things about yourself and your interests. Um, But I do think, you know, for our high achieving students, we sometimes have to remind them that we have applications to fill out or we have testing that we have to prep for and we have our essays we have to write for our application. So trying to start a nonprofit in the fall of senior year might not be the best use of our time. So I definitely do think it's on a case-by-case basis, but definitely be sure through high school and through the summer when you have a lot of time, you're really exploring and um, finding things that are interesting for you. 
I love that track example. I feel like I get that so often. A lot of times with instruments, like I did this mm-hmm. instrument and I, I hate it, but schools want to see that you follow through things and that you're continuing and dedication. Yes. That's a good value to have, but if you're hating this and it's, you know, you can be doing other things that are much more exciting to you that you're going to get more meaningful opportunities from it's okay. You you can quit <laughs> the sport or the, you know, activity that you don't really love anymore. Especially if you do have other activities that you are being consistent on. Like if you were, a, you know, an HOSA and a member and then a treasurer and then the president or whatever, you had that, that progression, like that's perfectly fine because then you are showing like commitment and long-term like interest in, the, in an activity. You don't have to have it in everything because you're definitely going to grow and evolve hopefully throughout your high school career. And so then having those interests and exploring new things is, is totally fine. I always kind of like have like a Marie Kondo kind of mentality to it. If it doesn't bring you joy anymore, then like throw it out. Like there's no point wasting your time on activities that you hate doing and you dread doing. Cause like, what's the point you, I'd rather students do things that they actually like to do because then ultimately they're going to want to do them more and then get more leadership positions and like go further in the activity than like something that they're just doing just to do it. How about myth number seven, which is I need to be more like my peers. Conversely, like my friend did like XYZ activity and got accepted to a particular school. So if I do the same, I should get accepted too. So this year I was chatting with an admissions counselor and she gave the best example that I want to share because I think it was just perfect. Um, She said, when we're looking through applications, um, we can't accept 100 class presidents. She Mm -hmm. says, can you imagine our campus with 100 class presidents walking around? No one would get to talk. No one would get like anything accomplished because they all be pushing their own agendas. Um, So the moral of that story is that colleges really want well-rounded classes. Mm -hmm. They want to see like the full picture. They want to make sure that they have students with all different interests from all different backgrounds. Um, looking for all different types of passions because they want to make sure the students on their campus will be successful and communicating with one another and all finding their own, you know, paths um, collaboratively and independently. So I I thought that example, I guess, because you can actually close your eyes and just imagine like a hundred class presidents on one campus together and that would just be a disaster. So I think it's a perfect example that they are looking for a well-rounded class. And just because your friend or cousin or neighbor created a nonprofit or was a president of this club, um, that doesn't mean that you will have necessarily the same results as that individual because you are a different individual with a different transcript and a different resume. Um, So I I do think it's important to um, find your own path and to uh, make sure you are following your own dreams and not just looking at what others around you have done previously. I think that also ties into like another myth that I don't even know if we have on our list. Like if I'm class president or if I'm valedictorian, like those are kind of shoe-ins to get a ton of acceptances. Like those are, you know, key things that schools love. I mean, you're absolutely right. They're great things, but you can't have every single one. That would be, (laughs) that would be crazy. And there's more valedictorians in the U.S., like out of all the high schools and like can be admitted into like a Harvard, for example. So it does not mean that you're a shoe-in. So these schools are just competitive and they are looking for, for other qualities, just besides, besides the one thing that you think is, is really perfect. And I, when I was getting my master's, that was one of the first books we read. Um, the first line was 
guess how many valedictorians apply to Harvard every year and guess how many are accepted. And then like the next line was like 75% of those valedictorians are denied. And it's, it's eye-opening because you would think a valedictorian would be accepted, but obviously um, we all know a little bit more of what goes into the application. Yeah. <laughs> it's the exact same concept as like the high SAT or ACT score, a 1600 being yeah. ranked number one or in the top 2% or whatever. This is not like a complete application at all. So myth number eight, um, I should visit every college on my list. That'd be really tough. It would be. I, I usually tell kids to don't visit every school on your list just because a lot of our kids, especially our BSMD students are doing like 20 to 30 colleges. And that's just a lot of colleges to be visiting. Even if you were to start like as a freshman, I think a lot of people do start college visits like a little bit too late. Um, you know, I have some seniors who haven't even like visited any colleges yet. So it is like really hard when we're making their college list because they don't have any concept of what like a 30,000 you know, camp student campus, like will look like versus like a 5,000 versus the 2000. They don't have a much concept about like, do they want to be in a city or a town or more rural or like anything like that? They just haven't like thought about those things. So I do think it's like useful to visit like a few schools just to get kind of a, a general sense of like what you like and what you don't like and, um, you know, private versus public and like, what's maybe some nuances of it. But, um, I definitely don't think that you can visit visit every school on your list. No, and I, and I think you're 100% right. It's a great way to start understanding what size school, what location um, you you want. But in the end, you can wait um, when you start receiving your acceptances. If it's rolling, it'll be earlier. If it's um, you know early action or early decision, it'll be like December through April. Once you start hearing back from schools, you then can visit those colleges um, because you're 100% right. If we have a student that has 20 to 30 schools on their list, it is a lot of money to get in the car or get on an airplane and visit all of those schools. Um, but one piece of advice too, I do think some students start a little too late on the college visits. Um, but if you have a younger sibling, bring them too. I was in middle school when we went for my brother and to me, it was the most amazing thing in the world that I saw a McDonald's on a college campus. And I was like, I can get McDonald's whenever I want, when I go to college, this is going to be the best thing ever. So <laughs> the experience can be eye-opening for everybody. Um, but I definitely think you don't have to visit every single school on your list. It definitely does help with understanding what does 69,000 people on one college campus actually feel like considering your high school has 800 students. So it does help with a lot of those um, uh, characteristics that we are trying to narrow down as we build our college list. I also agree. Like it's, I also feel like it's never too early to start visiting, you know, mm -hmm. even if you're not really thinking about a list, but you're going to visit family and they live, you know, nearby this university, just kind of go get creative with it. If you're already going to be out of town and other places, see where you can drive to start young. Like it's a great way to do it. Even if you're not interested in those schools later on, you have something to compare it to. I love the idea of like, if you're going to visit family and there's a college nearby, just take that official visit, no matter the age of the group or whatnot, but that way you're, you get to kind of kill two birds with one stone, have a great family weekend, but also potentially see a college or two along the way. And one thing I always stress to my kids too, take notes, because sometimes kids will go kind of on like a massive college tour. Well, they'll go to like Boston University, Boston College, Harvard, and like, you know, Johns Hopkins, like they'll do seven schools in like a week. 
Um, it's really hard to remember the difference between maybe Boston University and like Boston College in, in three weeks or a month or six months or a year, whatever, like whenever you're writing these essays, a lot of these schools will have like a OYS essay. So like visiting can be a great way to incorporate some of those elements that you learned on like those official tours while visiting. Um, but only if you take notes and kind of remember what you liked and what you didn't like about certain campuses. So definitely take notes. Um, so you can use that as ammunition later on for essays. If you get interviews, those types of things. And you're so true. Like it's, the colleges can blend together. So if you're not taking like enough pictures and definitely writing those notes so you do remember down the road, because you could be like, which was the college that had their own lab with the billion dollar microscope, you know? So um, mm -hmm. a lot of those little intricate, really important details can um, blend together over the years. So definitely take notes. And I always say take pictures too, because then that way you can kind of sort it in your phone nicely. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. Pictures are a really great idea. And sometimes the person doing the tour could potentially be the person that ends up reading your application later on to mm -hmm. like remember who you talk to and all of that information. Oh, and, and one more thing that I always hear is I didn't like that call that campus. And I'll say, oh, tell me why, because that's a really important part of the process is what didn't you like? And sometimes the answer is, oh, we drove through and we didn't see any students. Well, you drove through and it was July, so there's not many students on campus. And also, if you don't do that official visit and you're just driving by, you don't you don't even know what you're driving by, right? So you're just driving through a campus, but you don't know this is a library that has um, a famous book by blah, 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 or this is a lab that has that multi-million dollar microscope. So by just driving through a campus, you can see the buildings. Um, but you don't really get any of those really important details that an official visit um, can give you. So I always encourage students, if you are going to be near college or you are planning a college visit, to always go on the admissions page, go to campus visits and schedule that actual tour so you can get a real feel of the college and not just a, a drive-by. Smart. Yeah. And sign up early. Like if you were to like do it on a whim, like if you were, if it was Thursday and you were like, oh, I'm going to see if there's any opens on Saturday, there very well might not be. Um, and so start early and especially in April when a lot of kids are doing visits, it can get, can get kind of crazy. So just make sure to kind of look into those things beforehand and just make sure that you can actually get on the official tours. That was exactly what I was thinking about because we pay our deposit May 1st. So for some schools, when you hear back like April 1st and there's four weeks or so to get to that college to visit, those fill up really, really fast. So just make sure you're being proactive. Mm -hmm. Myth number nine, um, should social media accounts be private or can my personal social media accounts hurt my candidacy? So that's a really great question. So I think social media accounts should be private just in general and make sure that people are viewing your information that are people you know. So that's just a a safe practice, I think, um, with the crazy world of social media. But there have been instances, and I'm sure people have heard it on the news. I think last year and the year before, there was two really big stories where um, students that received acceptances to um, two different Ivy League schools, the admissions decision was rescinded when um, something that these individuals posted on social media went viral or was reported to the school. So I think it is important to remember that colleges wanna bring people to their college campus that they feel 
will be a part of the community and they'll bring great positive um, characteristics to that college community. So I do think we wanna make sure that we are being respectful and kind on social media, but making sure that we are um, keeping everything that we can private. And even if it is private to be kind and respectful to others. Yeah, completely agree. They probably won't see it, but on the off chance they do, it's like not worth posting whatever you want to post. It's a little risky if you do get your application rescinded. And that could happen really late in the process too. It doesn't like once you pay your deposit, it doesn't mean that you're you're still good to go. And like, you know, nothing can touch you at that point. Like it can be revoked at any point. So still be smart about things. I agree with Alex. Like I think privacy is important just because of the world that we live in, but I also feel like even if you are private, be very smart and intentional about what you're posting and, you know, just recognize that even if it's not college, it can follow you everywhere, job, you know, so. Yeah, it does not end. It does not end with college. And I feel like this is going to date me a little bit, but I feel like when Snapchat came out, there was like all this advice that like, just because the picture does disappears doesn't mean it actually disappears. Like it's still in the cloud or it can be screenshotted or whatnot. So just like in a general life rule, like even if you're goofing around with your friends or something like that, just make sure that everything you put in, out into this world via technology or email, or even by saying it out loud is something that you will stand by and that um, you are proud to share because there's a lot of people that could save that information or record it or something, um, you know, and potentially use it down the road against you. So just make sure that everything you're putting into this world is positive. And if it's not, then just keep it to yourself. <laughs> yep. All right. Myth number 10, college is too expensive. Yes. <laughs> Some colleges definitely are too expensive, but not all of them. That's for sure. Um, and there's a lot of different ways. And I, I think Nicole could probably speak about this more just yeah. based on past experiences, but there definitely are ways to get scholarships and kind of reduce that cost of, of school too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, is tuition has, I think, skyrocketed over the last decade, really, especially, you know, at private institutions. And then when you're counting in room and board and, you know, meal plans and all of it, it can absolutely add up. But there are so many ways um, that it could be much more affordable. Different schools will offer, you know, different aid packages as far as scholarship and merit aid. Um, and then obviously, you know, filling out the FAFSA and all of that can just add up. I mean, there's always the option of starting with community college. You save yourself about 50%. If you start with that route and so many schools, I think like every state probably has feeder programs from, you know, in North Carolina here, there's feeder programs straight to Chapel Hill. So you start for two years somewhere else. And oftentimes it's just not what students want to hear. They don't want to do it. Um, but you can ultimately end up at Chapel Hill for, you know, at the end of it, half the price of what you would have paid if you would have went, you know, kind of straight out of high school. So there's definitely other things that you can do, um, focusing on in-state schools, private, you know, in-state schools and, and state schools in general. Um, they do offer less aid typically as far as like merit scholarships. So private universities will usually always have more endowment scholarship money. So when we're making the list, you know, we talk about match reach safety and you should have kind of a variety of these things. I usually say have a variety of private versus public versus in-state, out of state as well. Just because when everything is said and done, you know, the numbers could be quite similar. Um, 
So really just have all the information and all the options for you. Yeah. And I definitely think also, so we know we have the financial aid piece through FAFSA or the CSS profile. FAFSA is changing this year. So stay on the lookout for that information from Moon Prep. Um, But there's also um, outside scholarships. So merit through the college, or you can actually apply um, for like scholarships via an application. So sometimes I'll hear, hey, I don't want to write another essay. It's only $500. Well, if it's took you one hour to write that essay and you achieved that scholarship, well, you got paid $500 for that one hour. So every scholarship does add up too. So if you apply for multiple scholarships and you get a thousand here, 500 here and a thousand here, that's $2,500. That can be your books for, you know, the year or whatnot. So every, I think scholarship does um, add up. Um, There's also a great website called Raise Me where they can actually like pay you to do things. So if you go on a college visit to Florida International University, they will pay you $100 um, to come to their campus and whatnot. So there are a lot of ways out there to get money. You just kind of have to, um, I think, definitely be creative and find the time to make sure you're organizing your time and getting those applications out separate from your actual college applications. I'm looking to see like what type of scholarships are available at different schools too um, is kind of key because the Ivies, for example, like don't do merit aid. They'll only do like need-based aid. And so just like being aware of that beforehand. So if you do do early decision to the school, you're not completely shocked when you find out you got barely any aid or none at all, um, just based on like how much money your family makes. And so looking into those types of things is going to be really key um, as you're making your college list. And it's something a lot of like my, my students that I work with don't really like to talk about with their parents because money is never fun to talk about, but talking about what you can afford, like what's kind of reasonable, um, what's going to make the most sense for like the family is key to start early just so that the kids can kind of have an idea of what is going to be feasible. And I know a lot of times parents like don't want to disappoint their kids if their dream school is like an Ivy League um, or U Chicago or whatever it might be, but those schools are, are expensive. And so just kind of having an idea of what what is reasonable. So then maybe that then they can be concentrating their energies on, you know, those scholarships and like, you know, working hard on getting those to, to hopefully lower the cost down a little bit. Oh, 100%. You don't want to share that information when we're, you know, it's May 1st and we're paying our deposit and the family then says, oh, by the way, we can't afford that. So those family conversations are really important in the Mm -hmm. beginning of that process. So the expectations and everything is understood. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So if you're looking for these types of answers to the questions or like, you know, what is tuition this year? And, you know, tuition changes every year, but I know typically if you admissions questions, you'll say, oh, I'll contact the admissions counselor. Every school has financial aid counselors also. So, and you can call them even if you're not a student and really just have these conversations about aid and what their scholarships look like if you can't really find this information on their website. So always, you know, take advantage of that resource too. All right. Myth number 11. I don't know what to study. Is that okay? Yes, it's okay. You're 17 (laughs) or 18 years old. You don't know what you have to, what you want to be when you grow up. And that is fine. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And you can change your mind too. Like you can start off, like, for example, I don't know if I shared this story on the podcast before, but I started off as like a business major and was like a direct admit to the program. And it was like super competitive to get into it. So I kind of felt like obligated and like on the wave of, I need to stay in this because everyone wants to get into it, but I was miserable. And so I think it was maybe like the start of my fourth semester, like the day before classes were really starting. I was like, okay, I can't, 
I can't do another semester of this um, and switched my major completely to like journalism. Much happier, completely different career, obviously, too. But, you know, it's one that I think has hopefully worked out for me. Um, and so you can change. Like, I didn't die. Like, a lot of my credits, like, did kind of work for both the business degree, like my gen ed kind of stuff, as well as, like, the journalism degree. And did have to do, like, an extra, like, half half lap of victory at the end. I did, like, another semester. But, um, you know, it, it did work out. And it wasn't, like, that big of a deal. So. If you think about it, you're like college time, you don't know what a lot of careers are. A lot of kids are like, oh, I want to be an engineer. I want to be um, in computer science. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. Like, you know, kind of those things that you know about as a kid, but you don't really know all the different opportunities that are available. And once you go to college and start to take classes, you might realize, oh, actually, I hate, I hate biology. I hate XYZ or whatever it is. And so those types of things are, are totally fine to explore and kind of figure out what's right for you. Completely. A high school can offer a lot of great classes for a student to explore, but they don't have anthropology or business law or micro and macro or forensics or all of these other you know avenues that um, might be of interest for a student's future career. Mm -hmm. So I think in college, it really is the time to explore and learn new things and and dive deep into what does it actually mean to be a doctor? What does it mean to be a lawyer? Um, and then I always give the little joke that like, you're going to call your mom and you're going to be like, wow, business law is amazing. I love this. I think I'm going to move forward with it. Or I really hate math. So I'm not going to, you know, be that economics major I once thought or that um, math degree that I was really shooting for in high school. So I think college is really that time to take classes and um, learn. Um, so I 100% think it's okay if a student does not necessarily know what they um, want to study or what their potential major is. And in a lot of schools, you can't fully declare that major till junior year. So mm -hmm. in a lot of times you're just giving them like your interest, like your field of study that you're interested in. Um, a lot of parents don't love this. They want their students to know exactly what, you know, path they're following, but it's, it's not wrong to be undecided and um, to explore. Mm -hmm. Speaking of majors, myth number 12, does picking a bizarre major increase my chances of getting accepted to a school? I don't think so. Um, I have a lot of families. I, I, you might also get a lot of families that ask that question. You know, I really want to apply to a competitive program. So should I choose the most obscure major or not a super competitive major to, you know, highlight my chances of getting in? I usually say no, especially if the extracurriculars that you've been building for, you know, if you want to go for pre-med and the extracurriculars that you've been building for are very indicative of, you know, going into pre-med and then you're deciding, oh, I'm going to be, you know, something extremely different. Um, I don't love that idea. I think be honest and be true to what you want to do and, and go from there. Yeah, I did have a, a couple, I did have a kid, a couple I guess it was last cycle now who did get into like a lot of really great schools like Vanderbilt, um, Duke. I want to say like one Ivy, but I can't remember which one. And he was like a classical studies major. And so I feel like that kind of helped him. He like his resume was, was good. Um, and he had like great test scores and great GPA. So he definitely did have the whole package, but I think like maybe the classical studies major could have potentially helped him but it wasn't something he like picked out of a hat by any means. Like this was something that his like extracurriculars like backed up. Like, so he had taken Latin for years um, and had done quite a bit like within like the Latin, like, I don't remember exactly what he did. I know he'd done like a lot of exams and like done some things so that he 
was doing like a research paper like on ancient Rome. And so it kind of made sense for him and like had like a deep interest in classical studies. And it was actually something he wanted to study. And so, you know, if all of his activities were like HOSA and DECA and um, like robotics and those types of things with like never like an interest in classical studies, it might be, might be a different story, but potentially I think it could help if your activities match up. Yeah. If it's something that you're interested in, absolutely. But I've definitely had students who know that they want to go for pre-med, but know that that's so competitive. So they're like, let me just choose something else. Just going to put in the door. And I, that's definitely what I don't advise to do. I completely agree, Nicole. I feel like sometimes it'll be like, let me pick library science. And you look at that student's resume and it's like research, independent research, doctor shadowing, and, and nothing shows library science on there. Um, so I do think that is a little bit of a red flag for that college. <laughs> um, and there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to transfer into that type of program. You know, if you really did want biology. Yeah, like Cornell or NYU, those are like two um, schools where you apply for your majors and applying or trying to change your major um, from those schools is really challenging and, and that has that purpose. Um, so I agree. If you, I feel you just want to be honest um, because you don't want something to show up as a red flag and that, um, you know, you not get the results because they thought you were trying to be shady. All right. Myth number 13, um, BSMD programs aren't that competitive. False. <laughs> false. The biggest false. I wish it wasn't true. <laughs> yeah. Extremely, extremely competitive. Most of them have less than a 5% acceptance rate. Um, so they're really looking for the top tier students and that's who is all applying. Yeah. So for example, Case Western Camera, if it was last year, the year before they got 2,800 applicants and they accept just 15 to 20 students. So it's a 0.4% acceptance rate. Brown last year got almost 4,200 applications, um, 80 spots or so. So it's like a 2% application or 2% acceptance rate. Um, GEW, George Washington typically gets like a thousand or more applications, 10 spots, 1% or less acceptance rate. So a lot of like these top, top programs will be, you know, 2%, 1%, less than 1% acceptance rate. So they, they are definitely competitive. And that's why we encourage our students to do 10 to 15 programs. I mean, looking at those numbers, they're more competitive than the Ivy League. So that's and yes, we, we definitely do want to apply to a lot of different programs, but we also need those safety schools because we know how competitive these programs are. We always have to have that um, backup plan. And if you are applying for BSMD and you are that pre-med student, safety, safety, safety on the pre-med track. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I had a family yesterday ask me because we were looking at their BSMD list and they're like, okay, which ones of the BSMD programs are going to be our safety reaches and matches? And I was like, well, all of, all of these are going to be reaches on your BSMD list. Like there's not one that, you know, is a sure thing um, or like, you know, a pretty assured thing. BSMD is going to be competitive. Even if like, you know, you're like, for example, for our Illinois residents, the University of Illinois, Chicago, they do have like a decent amount of seats, you know, 50 seats or so, and it's only open to Illinois residents. So your chances aren't bad to get accepted to there, but I think their acceptance rate is still like 10% or probably less at this point. So it's, it's still really tough to get accepted into the program. Um, and so that's like the big thing to kind of remember. It's like, even if you, you know, have a good connection with someone there, or you like did research in the lab at that university, um, other kids might've too, there might be other things as well. So 
there's never, there's never guarantee in BSMD. All right. Myth number 14. Um, and this one we're going to throw to you, Nicole, um, sure. asking for financial aid hurts my chances of getting accepted into a school. No, um, I'm going to say, you know, definitely not. A lot of schools are need blind anyway, so they're not even going to see your FAFSA until you've been accepted. Um, as a lot of, you know, I've probably said it before, I worked as a financial aid counselor, um, prior to working for moon prep and, we wouldn't even process your FAFSA until after you've been accepted. A, because if we processed every single FAFSA before, like with all the acceptances that we had, it's so many more things to do. So the FAFSA isn't even looked at until after you get accepted, then we look for your FAFSA. So definitely not. Um, and even if it is looked at prior, so let's say you, you know, did your FAFSA early and you're sitting down with an admissions counselor and you're, or a financial aid counselor, you're looking to get accepted and, you know, it, it's not going to at all really impact your chances of getting accepted. Um, we usually, every admissions counselor that I know would say, have you filled out your FAFSA? Just because they know that it often will make the, your eligibility to go there probably even greater. Whereas the additional aid that you get might make it more possible for you to go. Now, what about those schools that like ask on the common app, you know, in the school specific questions, they'll be like, are you planning to ask for like need-based aid? Do you think that's an indication that they are going to consider that into your admissions decision? I don't think so. Um, and not, not from, not from what I have read and, and just have known from working in the field. I think it's just more of kind of for their data to learn, um, I know some of the stats that they push out, like if they had a thousand applicants and they had, you know, 700 acceptances and they had, you know, 500 kids enroll and, you know, 40% of those students applied for need-based aid. And that's kind of what they're going to showcase like on their kind of profile and on their data. Um, but no, I don't, I don't think that it ultimately will impact. I mean, if we're talking about need-based aid, it's so low <laughs> what students receive and what you have to be, you know, qualified for to get the max amount, like what you have to have in order to qualify for the max amount is these ranges are so small. So it doesn't move the needle as much as it really should and could. So I don't think that it makes, um, makes those admissions decisions, but there could be schools that do just not anywhere that I have, um, known about. Yeah, I hope, I hope not. It seems, seems kind of crazy to kind of think about, but I don't, I don't know. It's so hard to say too, like if that's the reason why they get rejected or not, but I haven't ever heard of that being a thing either. And I mean, so many people that file the FAFSA really don't receive anything really. I mean, as far as aid that you don't have to pay back. Yes. Everyone's eligible for loans. The schools don't have a preference if they're getting a loan or they're getting it, you know, straight from your bank account they have really no preference. It's they're going to get the money either way. Um, and in order to be eligible for Pell or, you know, SEOG, if the school has that or, you know, um, work study, it has to be such a low income, um, for your family. So it's, and you know, what you're receiving, even if, with, if it's the max, it's like maybe 20% of tuition for the year. It, it's not, these huge amounts is going to cover tuition at a lot of these schools that would be making decisions based on this. All right. Myth number 15, I should take the SAT and the ACT. 
And then also another one kind of related, some schools prefer the SAT versus the ACT. I always suggest that students um, take one SAT and one ACT to really get a feel for both exams. So not like a practice test at a testing center or, you know, sitting on their bed and doing it themselves, um, mm -hmm. but actually registering for a real SAT, a real ACT and comparing those two scores. Um, the ACT is very fast. So for some students that are fast readers, it really might benefit them. For some students that are a bit slower, um, the ACT can be a bit challenging as far as the timing piece. Um, so I really like for students to get both of those out of the way, the baselines are evaluated, and then the student commits to one exam moving forward. I personally feel like it gets kind of complicated if a student is practicing for one and they're taking it in May and they're practicing for the other one and taking it in June. So I think it's really helpful to try and make that commitment. Um, but typically there's no preference. So years and years ago, the West Coast um, promoted the ACT and the East Coast permitted um, uh, required um, the SAT. So that was just kind of based on region. But now 30 years later or whatnot, the colleges um, accept either interchangeably. Of course, there's always exceptions to that rule. So um, we did look up that Montclair in New Jersey does not actually accept the ACT for their BSMD program. So it is one of the important um, details to consider when you are applying to colleges, make sure you are looking at what is required um, by that specific university. But typically students will move forward with the exam that highlights their strengths best. And I feel like another question we always get on here is like, if I take the test two or three times, is that too many? No. Colleges want um, students, obviously, to, to perfect their study habits, and um, colleges will not hold um, taking a test two, three, or four times against them, especially with score choice, where students get to highlight their highest score um, achieved on the exam overall. So I definitely encourage students to start early and start prepping early. Um, so making sure that they are fitting time into their schedule for SAT or ACT prep is really, really important. And I actually do feel it is one of um, the biggest regrets that students will say at the end of the process is they feel like they could have put a little bit more time and energy into their test prep. So I always try and encourage students to try and um, plan for test prep whenever possible. Do it early. Don't mm -hmm. wait till like your senior year summer to take it for the first time because then it just like adds a huge layer of stress. And I don't think we necessarily address this, but should they take both exams, Nicole, like both the SAT and the ACT? You can. Um, you know, Alex said she usually suggests one of each. I think this year we've definitely had students who do better on one exam versus the other, just the nature of the test, the student style. Um, if you want to commit to one, you've spent a lot of time, you know, prepping for one and you want to stick with that, then that's fine. If you are unsure and you want to explore, you do your research and you think that, you know, want to give both of them a shot. As long as you're starting with that early, really like the beginning of 11th grade, I think one of each is, is fine. I think everyone that does take one of each is naturally inclined to liking one over the other and usually does a little bit better on one versus the other. So it is a good strategy, but it's not a must have for everybody. Yeah, I'll have some kids who will get like a 1550 on the SAT and they'll be like, okay, great. So now I need to get a 35 on the ACT as well. And like, I don't, I don't no, know. No, yeah. That increases the chances at all. And it's just kind of like a waste, waste mm -hmm. of time. Plus like, are you really going to submit like your, um, like official school score reports to like all those schools? Like that's expensive. Like, of course you could report on the common app, but, um, it just seems 
seems unnecessary. Your 1550, whatever it is, like is good enough. And I also feel like we touched on this earlier, like where's your time better spent Mm -hmm. and what is that showcasing to the admissions counselors? Okay. So if you self-report bold and you have a 35 and a 1550, you know, it's showing that you're a good test taker and how much time did you spend after you got that 1550 prepping for the ACT now that you could have been, you know, in your community volunteering or, you know, doing something else really. Yes. Perfect advice. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of kids right now who's like kind of debating if they should take the SAT again, like in August, but they have good scores. Like they've got like their 1530 or their 1500 and they're like, well, I, I think I could do better. And it's like, well, at this point, it's way better to spend your time on other things. But then for some kids who are like so anxious about it, I'm like, well, if it's going to cause you that much anxiety for the next eight months until you get like your results, just take the test again and like, just be done with it. So you don't have to, to wonder like, what if I just taking it one more time? So I do have kind of a different strategy based on the anxiety level of a student. Yeah. And then just like their schedule. I mean, if it's a student that's from the Northeast and they don't go back to school until mid-September mm-hmm. and August is wide open and they can get their you know essay work done and their other stuff done, you know, go for it. But if it's yeah. a student that's starting school at the, at the beginning of next week in Georgia, um, like we could really be spending your time better somewhere else. Great. Unfortunately, I also think it's important too. like, if you're in the 99th percentile, which those scores that you mentioned, Lindsay are, mm-hmm. then I definitely think your time could be used somewhere else. You're already oh, in the 99th yeah. percentile. <laughs> exactly. I completely agree. Like there's such a small statistical difference. Like it could be just like one or two questions different. And like the schools know that too. And they're going to be, they're going to be paying attention to those types of things. Okay. Let's move on to myth number 16. Um, who should I ask for letters of rec and should I ask for one math and science and one English or history teacher? I think it just depends on your relationship with the teacher. Um, I think it's kind of obvious, you know, students will think that I should get a science teacher. I should get a math teacher. I want to go for pre-med. I want to go for BSMD. But if you have a really great relationship with your English teacher or your you know history teacher, that's fine too. Um, they're writing about your caliber as a student and the way that you interact with peers, the way that you interact in the classroom setting, they're not necessarily going to talk about the fact that you were in AP bio and, you know, got hundreds on every test. They're going to see that on your transcripts already. So it doesn't have, in my opinion, it doesn't have to necessarily just be those teachers. If you have just a much better rapport, um, with maybe someone else. I agree. And I also think that you should select someone from most likely 11th grade. Um, Sometimes I'll have a student that will say, oh, I really love my ninth grade English teacher. Well, you have really changed and developed a lot since ninth grade. So I would say the best advice is unless that teacher will be teaching you again in 12th grade, or they're like a moderator for one of the clubs you do, um, it's probably best to pick someone from 10th, the earliest, um, but 11th would be the preference unless you've had them in another capacity somewhere else. But yeah, I, we always get that question of math, science and English history to show that you're well-rounded. Well, I don't think that's necessarily the best. You definitely want to pick the teacher that knows you the best and can write about um, you in the classroom, outside of the classroom with like real life experience as to who you are and what you'll bring with you to that college. Yeah. And like some teachers are also coaches and like, if you do music, maybe you're also in the band or, you know, and they they see you on multiple capacities. That's a great person. That's going to really be able to speak about you. Again, they're not really talking about the grades that you receive in their class and, and your knowledge in that subject. And I guess 
To that end too, myth number 17 kind of relates, um, attending a summer program at a school or getting a letter of recommendation from a professor at a school increases my chances of getting into that school. Not necessarily, no. And we have a lot of families that think that. And I think that some kind of really only focus on specific summer programs or specific programs because that's the school that they want to go to. And I mean, in theory, I guess it could kind of make sense, but it's definitely not the case because everyone's kind of thinking the same thing. Yeah, they can all, they can accept a lot more kids into summer programs because they can have, you know, three different, four different summer programs or more, honestly, a lot of these big universities will have just like a ton of, of summer programs each, each year, and they can be accepting a lot of students into it. Um, and so it just isn't, isn't feasible that they could all get accepted into the program, like the actual university. Yeah. So I always say the result of those summer programs is to network and potentially maybe have some research skills and opportunities and some resume building activities. But if you go to the Harvard summer program and Harvard sees that on your application, they're not going to check except just because of that summer mm -hmm. program. Definitely. And same thing for like letters of recommendation. Like I'll have some people be like, well, this like letter of rec, he went to Harvard or he's a professor there. So that's going to increase my chances. Or like, I know someone, I think Darlene had like a story where like a dean or a president, someone like pretty high up in like a university, like wrote a letter of recommendation for a kid and they still got rejected. And so those letters of rec don't necessarily have like a lot of weight if it is from maybe not, not a lot of weight, but they, there's so many other pieces to the puzzle too that a recommendation letter from someone from the university won't necessarily have the biggest of impacts that you might want it to have. I think this is our last myth and one that we'll definitely face every single year. Um, so myth number 18, I got rejected from my early decision school. That means I'm gonna be rejected from all other schools that are more competitive or equally competitive. I know I get this a lot from like the SMD students where they're like, well, this school that they were like kind of considering their safety, perhaps, even though, as we talked about, there's no safety for BSMD, um, they get rejected from there. So they're like, there's absolutely no chance at like a Case Western or a Brown or whatever it might be. Um, but different people are evaluating, different kids are applying. Um, they have different values. They have different um, things that they're looking for in their class. And so maybe they had already accepted kids that, you know, were class presidents. And so, you know, you had a lot of leadership on your your um, on your resume. And so they just didn't need any other students that were had kind of similar backgrounds as you. Um, and so maybe at a different school, they do need some of those types of kids. And so it's it's so hard to like say just because you get rejected from from Duke means that you're going to get rejected from like the Chicago because they are definitely looking for very different types of students too. So there's like a probability term. So somebody help me where it's like because of the first decision, the second and third decision are not impacted. I remember mm -hmm. like that, but exactly. Just because you were um, not accepted to one school doesn't mean all the other schools who are also reviewing your application holistically won't see that you would be the perfect fit for their schools. Mm -hmm. so, I understand we don't always want to hear rejections. We know when we're applying for BSMD schools or, you know, some Ivy leagues with, you know, single digit acceptances that rejections are probable, but that's why we want to make sure our college list is really balanced with match and safety schools as well. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. Balance is key. Balance is definitely key. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. You never know. You never know who your essay is going to relate to and who's reading your, you know, profile and all that. So you really just never know. And you're submitting different things to different schools, like the essays, like, of course, the personal statement is going to be saying your activity list is going to be the same. Your transcript and your scores aren't going to change, but your supplemental essays are going to change too. And so maybe you just like really nailed a supplemental essay from one school, or you did do like that optional interview and demonstrated a lot of interest who knows, there's so many different factors that go into this, that, you know, those little things could turn the tide, even for a BSMD program or just traditional schools. All right. So I think that's all our myths that we're going to debunk today. Um, Thanks so much for joining us in this week's episode of White Coat Club. Um, Don't forget to like and subscribe to get more content about BSMD and med school admissions.